You don't know flag. You Don't Know Flat, a podcast full of stories about retro gaming, retro computing, video games, arcade games, and technology from a guy who was there and still is. My name is Rob O'Hara, but for the next 30 minutes, you can call me Flat. Episode 125, The Video Game Crash of 1983. Hello and welcome to episode 125 of You Don't Know Flack. Today is Sunday, February 24th, 2013, and I am your host, Rob Flack O'Hara. Today on You Don't Know Flack, I'll be talking about the great video game crash of 1983. Uh, I'm also very sick today, <laughs> and um, I really shouldn't be recording, but uh, I just took some decongestants, some Sudafed, some NyQuil, no, DayQuil, sorry. Hope I didn't have NyQuil. Look, I'm confused already, so it uh, should be an interesting episode. The uh, music you hear in the background is from the album Viva La Revolution, performed by Dorothy's Magic Bag, which was released in 2006 on the 8-Bit Peoples label. If you go to 8bitpeoples.com, you can download all kinds of free 8-Bit chiptune music, and a lot of it's uh, actually quite good. I've been trying to listen to more chiptune music lately, so uh, if you're into that, go to 8bitpeoples.com, and you can check out Dorothy's Magic Bag and uh, several of the other artists on 8bitpeoples.com and I will be uh, featuring some 8-Bit Peoples, more 8-Bit Peoples music in the future on the podcast. I didn't uh, get a lot of feedback this week, but I did get one email from a listener named Rex Allison that I wanted to share. And uh, Rex just said, awesome podcast, and thank you Rex for that. And he said he's a fan and he would like to sponsor an episode, which is greatly appreciated. He says he doesn't have a website, podcast, or manifesto that he needs reading, but he just likes the show and he thinks it's cool that I share my story. So thank you, Rex. Um, I really appreciate that. If you would like to sponsor an episode like Rex, if you have something to plug, or if you uh, just want to support the You Don't Know Flack podcast, you can go to podcast.robohara.com. Up at the top, look for the sponsors link, and you can find all the information that you need there about uh, sponsoring You Don't Know Flag. Now, let's uh, check the voicemail box and see if we got any voicemail this week. You have one message. First message. Hey, Flack. I have a question for the You Don't Know Flack podcast. What's, what's the goofiest arcade conversion? that you've ever had a chance to see. Thanks. I'll hang up and listen. Well, thank you, random anonymous caller. I'm not sure who that was, but um, I actually do know who that was. That was my friend Rob Sherwin, but uh, I should pretend like I don't know who that is. But thank you, Rob, for calling in and asking a question on the You Don't Know Flack voice mailbox. So what is the goofiest arcade conversion cabinet that I have ever seen? Well... A little bit of definition there. Uh, in the uh, in the early days of arcade games, of arcade machines, uh, parts were not very interchangeable. It wasn't uh, very simple to convert. It, it was quite difficult, in fact, to convert a 
let's say a Donkey Kong machine into a Pac-Man machine. There are very few common parts uh, between those two machines. So, but um, uh, later on, the and I've mentioned uh, you've probably heard me mention JAMA before. Basically, what JAMA is is um, a standard, a wiring and voltage standard, uh, a joystick and control standard that allows you to easily swap PCBs or printed circuit boards, motherboards, like in a computer, uh, to swap PCBs from one machine to another. So, essentially, um, when you get to JAMA cabinets, you, uh, by and large, you can swap out PCBs, almost like plugging and unplugging cartridges for a video game console. Uh, uh, you know, later on, it was very easy to upgrade one machine to another machine. You just had to at the most basic level, swap out the PCB and you'd have a new game. When you purchased a kit from a manufacturer, you'd also get a new bezel and uh, marquee and graphics for the side. But, you know, if you just had it in a generic cabinet, um, you know, Dynamo was famous for uh, their cabinets. People just buy a Dynamo cabinet and uh, just put whatever game they wanted in it. So, Later on in arcades in the late 80s uh, and early 90s, it was very common to see games that had been converted from one game to another. So what is the goofiest conversion I have ever seen? And I have to tell you, I've seen a lot of goofy conversions, and I've owned several goofy conversions. In fact, the goofiest one that I own or have ever owned is my Rampart cabinet. And what makes... A cabinet or a conversion goofy to me is that the original cabinet is so recognizable that when people see it, they think they know what it is, and then you've converted it into something uh, that it shouldn't be. And what makes it even goofier is when whatever it has been converted to has less value or interest. So uh, the two that I've personally owned that I think are the goofiest conversions, one is my Rampart cabinet, which was installed into a Gauntlet 2 cabinet. So, if you've ever seen a Gauntlet 2 machine, it's a very large cabinet. It has a, a long sloping back, uh, or like, you know, a, kind of a sloping angle where the monitor is, and then a, and a very high back piece where the marquee goes. And then a large control panel, that, because you've got, you know, it's four-player, and everybody has a, needs a little elbow room there. So it's a four-player cabinet. It's very large, and... Uh, there's only two machines, Gauntlet and Gauntlet 2, that use that machine. So, um, and I've read that they are slightly different. Um, I think you'd have a hard time just looking at uh, two unless you really knew what you were looking for to see what the difference is. But essentially, they look uh, fairly identical. So, you know, whenever you see a Gauntlet cabinet, immediately you go, huh, that's a Gauntlet cabinet. But then uh, when you look at mine... And it doesn't help that the back of mine says Gauntlet 2, and it has Gauntlet 2 uh, side art on the side. And then when you get up and turn it on, it's Rampart. And the control panel has been replaced, so there's only two joysticks and two buttons per player uh, on this giant control panel, which is made for four people. So it's really quite ridiculous looking. And uh, the only reason I still have it is because I enjoy Rampart. Uh, I would say that's uh, probably a top ten game of mine. You know, it's one I used to play a lot back in the day. Uh, and my friends and I used to play it and, and blow up each other's castles and stuff. So it, it's quite a bit of fun. In fact, um, uh, the No Quarter podcast, I know uh, uh, 
I've mentioned them several times, but they recently did an episode uh, dedicated to Rampart, so that's a good place to go. Monsterfeet.com forward slash no quarter. So if you go over there, uh, I think it was the episode before last was Rampart, episode 18, it looks like on the website here. So uh, if you want to hear more about Rampart, those guys did a good job of covering that. Um, the other goofiest conversion I've personally owned is I purchased a Robocop cabinet in part of a large lot, a lot that contained five games. And when I got the Robocop machine, it was in a blue, uh, Miss Pac-Man cabinet. And actually, I don't think it was Miss Pac-Man. We never did figure out, uh, exactly what it was. I think it was a Pac-Man cabinet because it was a, it was obviously a Namco cabinet. It had orange molding on the front, like the molding that goes around, um, which was on a few games, like Pac-Man had orange tea molding, and Rally X, I think, had orange tea molding, but then the entire cabinet was blue, so it almost looked like it had been a Pac-Man cabinet that someone had then painted blue and maybe upgraded to Miss Pac-Man at one time, but uh, all that had been stripped out, and someone had turned it into a JAMA cabinet with Robocop in it. It just uh, it looked pretty stupid. <laughs> First of all, there's, there's no marquee in it, because uh, the Robocop marquee on an original Robocop is this big uh, curved marquee. So instead, mine just had a, um, a big white space there where a marquee should have been. And then the uh, bezel that went around the monitor, someone had cut it to try to make it fit. Uh, and so it was taped together with scotch tape and several places. It was just really stupid looking. So I think those are two of the goofiest that uh, I've ever owned. The goofiest one I've ever seen was at an auction years ago. And I will add a link to this picture just because this was uh, quite ridiculous looking. I took a picture of it, and I remember at the time thinking what a ridiculous looking cabinet it was. But it was a Star Wars stand-up arcade, like an original Star Wars cabinet, that someone had converted it into a Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtles Turtles in Time cabinet or game. So the entire thing looked like a Star Wars machine. So it was dark, you know, black, plastic. Uh, had, you know, the molding, all the things uh, on it that make it look like the inside of a spaceship. And then in the little area where, the sloped area, where the joystick yoke would normally go, uh, they had mounted the joystick. So the joysticks and the buttons were on a slope, like at a 45-degree angle. It, it's so stupid looking. And, and I know what happened. Uh, you know, the old Star Wars game used a vector monitor, and those things are a pain in the ass to keep working and a pain in the ass to fix. And I'm sure what happened is that monitor went out and somebody, you know, sold the board out of it and decided to, you know, throw a regular monitor in it and convert it to another game. But why? First of all, I don't know why they wouldn't just make it like Return of the Jedi or, uh, you know, some other space game or something like that. But, you know, making it Teenage Mutant Ninja Turtle, it's just so stupid looking. So that, that is by far the goofiest arcade conversion I've ever seen. Uh, so anyway, thanks, Rob. Uh, thanks for calling in. Rob Sherwin, not myself. I don't talk about myself in third person. I try normally. Uh, depending on all this cough medicine, I might start today. But um, thanks for calling in uh, and leaving the message. If you have any feedback on this show or any other show or any suggestions for future show topics or questions you would like answered on the You Don't Know Flag podcast, Feel free to send me an email at robohara at robohara.com, uh, or you can call the voice mailbox and leave a message yourself. That phone number is 206-309-9501. And if you would like your name or email or anything else like that read 
uh, played or not played on the voicemail, then just leave it on there. Uh, the other story this week is that I bought a new monitor for my Commodore 64, and I could hear you saying, wow, that is very exciting, but I decided, you know, I, I'm running out of room, I have this little tiny office area, and uh, the table next to me, I have an 8-foot table with a Apple II, an Amiga 1200, and a Commodore 64 all hooked up, and most of the disk space is taken up with monitors, and I started thinking, you know, if I could... Uh, figure out a way to share one monitor between these three machines, which is pretty simple for the ones that use uh, composite video. You know, you just uh, run it through a switch box and into one monitor. But then the Amiga, the Amiga hooking that up is uh, that's a whole podcast right there. But anyway, so I was at Sam's Club the other day, and I thought, you know what, I'm just going to get a, a flat panel monitor and try to hook all these things up to it. And so I looked at the uh, smaller, you know, large computer monitors, like 21-inch, 24-inch monitors, and then I thought, you know, if I'm going to do that, I might as well get a small flat-screen TV, and I looked at the flat-screen TVs, and I was like, well, 32 inches, you know, that seems ridiculous. So I bought a 40-inch uh, flat-screen television. Sam's had them on sale for just under 350 So I now have a 40-inch flat-screen Sanyo television that I'm using, uh, and my, is it fantastic. I have been playing... Uh, Load Runner and Choplifter and River Raid and all my favorite old uh, Commodore games and I've, I've been playing Karataka on the Apple II. My uh, Amiga video right now is horrible because I'm still running a composite cable out but I'm looking into all the adapters I need to run it uh, into straight VGA so I need a uh, I've tracked down, I guess I need a 23 to 15 pin adapter first of all and second of all, I need a flicker fixer. So the adapter, the cheapest one I found is um, about $35. And it doesn't help that all these things, I, I can't find any sources for a lot of these things in the U.S. They all seem to be overseas. But um, So I need a $35 adapter and then a $90 flicker fixer. I also, my mouse uh, doesn't seem to be working anymore. So instead of buying a new Amiga mouse, I found a Amiga 2... PS2 style mouse adapter for about 20 so uh, I haven't ordered all these things yet if you have any of those things laying around and you would like to donate them to the You Don't Know Flying podcast please let me know otherwise uh, I will be making a very large and ridiculous order of uh, Amiga hardware in the near future so anyway that's what's been going on around here but um, what we're here today to talk about is the video game crash of 1983 so let's go ahead and get started with that topic for episode 125 of You Don't Know Flack understand the video game crash of 1983 you have to go back to the beginning of the video game era uh, as far as it's concerned with Atari now Atari had in-house game programmers and they didn't want to credit these people um, there, there's kind of been two schools of thought I guess when it comes to crediting video game developers. The first is, video game developers should be out of sight, out of mind. Uh, in other words, you know, this is an Atari game. 
this isn't a David Crane game, but this is an Atari game. So that's one school of thought is that, uh, you know, it's the company's product. It wasn't a product of any single person. But the other school of thought was that um, it is a creation by a person and that they should be credited. And so uh, as many of you, I'm sure, know, in the early days of Atari, several programmers split off from Atari because they felt like they should be getting... uh, more pay and more recognition, and they split off and formed Activision. Uh, Back then, if you had the know-how, the technical knowledge to create cartridges for an Atari 2600, you could do so. And so, uh, when these Atari programmers split off and formed Activision, they knew how to write Atari 2600-compatible code, uh, and they figured out how to create Atari 2600-compatible cartridges. So Atari did sue Activision, but there was no restraining order, and so this lawsuit was eventually settled in 1982. Now, Activision, of course, had been uh, selling games all along, but it was kind of this weird gray area where no one was sure if this was truly legal or not. Atari said that it wasn't legal. Um... And so the outcome of that lawsuit in 1982 was that third-party video games were legal. So what happened as a result of that lawsuit? Well, at that point, anybody and everybody who could uh, code Atari 2600 games did so. Uh, If they couldn't, they hired people who could. And so what we saw starting in 1982 was a huge onslaught of horrible, crappy games. Um, the modern term for this is shovelware, if you've ever heard that. Um, I hear that a lot uh, in regards to the Nintendo Wii, that its library has a lot of shovelware. But um, uh, but yeah, so the Atari 2600, my God, if you look through the games that were released, you know, 82, 83, 84, some of the not the best games for the system, let's put it that way. So... What happened as a result of that? Well, all these games flooded the market. So now instead of having, you know, 10 or 20 or 30 or 40 games to choose from at a store, now there were hundreds. And they weren't selling because there's too many games, right? People are only going to buy so many games a month. So the stores at that point, because they were flooded, tried to send some of these games back to their suppliers. But the problem was some of these suppliers went out of business because they were just flooded uh, with so much product that wasn't selling. What the stores had to do to get rid of this product was discount the prices. So now what you, I mean, this is where you can see the whole thing starting to fall apart, the whole business model. Now you have games that were selling for, you know, $20, $30, $40, stuff like that. Now all of a sudden uh, they're becoming greatly discounted Uh, And you start seeing games for $10 or $5. And not only uh, are we talking about the bad games that are getting discounted, but now the good games. Because if this is a game, you know, this game's selling for $5 and this game's selling for $30, well, people aren't going to buy the $5 game. So so this whole ecosystem of game sales starts to to, uh, implode in on itself. Now, unfortunately, at this same time, we see two high-profile games for the Atari 2600 probably unfairly get thrown under the bus as being 
the primary cause of the video game crash. I don't think they're the primary cause. I, I think they contributed to it. Uh, but those two games were Pac-Man and E.T. Now, first of all, uh, this is how Pac-Man sounded in the arcade. This is Pac-Man on the Atari 2600. Now, there are web pages, there are chapters of books dedicated. If you haven't read Racing the Beam, you should stop this podcast immediately and go buy that. That's a fantastic book. Um, If you look at the Atari 2600 from a uh, developer standpoint, from a hardware uh, level, what it was designed to support, which is essentially two players, a bullet, and a background. Uh, you know, I mean, if you look at Pong, you've got two paddles, a bullet, a ball, whatever, that bounces back and forth, and a static background. If you look at combat, you have two players, now they're tanks, shooting at each other, uh, and a background. If you look at Gunfighter, you have two cowboys, uh, a background with a stagecoach uh, that shoot at each other. Basketball, same thing. All these, you know, these original games were uh, more or less the same game. <laughs> uh, they just look different, right? So getting Pac-Man to work on an Atari 2600 uh, is a great technological feat. Now, obviously, there were concessions that had to be made. I mean, first of all, Pac-Man is a vertical game. I mean, it runs on a vertical monitor, and most televisions were, all televisions were horizontal. So, uh, you know, the maze had to be redesigned. The fact that now, you know, one, one character is Pac-Man. The other character are these four ghosts. So, you know, I mean, just the technical wizardry that was involved to get Pac-Man on the Atari 2600. Now, I think people should appreciate it more now, uh, you know, than they did back then. Uh, you know, people were disappointed as a kid. I wasn't that disappointed. I, I mean, I saw what it was and I saw that it was different than the arcade. I mean, it wasn't like we were stupid and we, you know, People looked at it and went, uh, yeah, that doesn't look like the arcade, but, um, you know, it was still Pac-Man. We played Pac-Man, so, I don't know, I, I, I guess um, it didn't didn't seem horrible to me as a kid. But, yeah, Pac-Man, that was a big, uh, you know, when you look at some of the earlier Atari games that were better because they weren't trying to do as much. Also, you know, I've read that a lot of early video games and arcade games took place in outer space because it was very easy to have a black background. So as these games, as newer games had colorful backgrounds and, and people, you know, players expected more and more out of these machines, especially these old, like the Atari 2600, um, you know, it just couldn't, um, just couldn't keep up from a technical standpoint. The other game that everybody has heard of as being a horrible game is E.T., the extraterrestrial. And E.T. is a horrible game. I'm sorry. <laughs> I mean, I'm not, uh, I'm not, this is a groundbreaking news. If you've ever played E.T. First of all, um, if you've, if you ever got a loose copy, like if you gave someone right now an Atari 2600 that had never played E.T. and put the game in, they would have no idea what to do. It's not like, you know, you can look at Pac-Man and it, even if you had no concept of Pac-Man, you have no idea 
of Pac-Man, how Pac-Man works or whatever, you'd figure it out. I mean, it wouldn't take that long that the ghosts kill you and that the eating power pellets gives you points and that when you eat the big flashy power pellets, you can eat the ghosts. Uh, it's not that hard, you know? But when you look at E.T., I, I don't think anybody, I don't think you could ever figure out exactly what you're supposed to do without reading the manual. And then it was such a frustrating game anyway, uh, you know, as you were always falling down these little pits and, and people were chasing you. And it's just not a fun fun game, you know, and, and the, uh, the demo, it's not a fun game for the demographic that it should have been aimed at, you know, when, uh, E.T. came out, what is that, 82? I think it's 82. So when E.T. came out, I was nine years old. E.T., the game for the Atari 2600 is not a fun game for nine-year-olds. So you have these high profile games that aren't reflecting well on the system. But then, they're being smothered and pushed out by crappy third-party games, that shovelware I mentioned earlier. And one of the uh, best examples of that is a game called Sneak and Peek, which is hide-and-seek for the Atari 2600. Now, I had a friend who had this game, and I remember he had, like, several... My friend Andy, uh, I've got, like, four or five new games that I went over, and they were he had got them for $5 each from somewhere, uh, like a, you know, local... Not a, like Walgreens or, or CVS, whatever that was back then, you know. And, uh, yeah, they were like five bucks, you know. And so we're playing Sneak and Peek, which is hide and seek on the Atari 2600. So one person literally, you know, closes their eyes or turns around and the other person walks through this house and hides their person. And then the other person has to go around. And I remember, like, I was not old. Maybe I was 10 years old at the time. Um, but I remember thinking, this is something we can do in real life. We could be playing hide-and-seek right now in your house, dude. <laughs> you know, like... Uh, I mean, there are games where... Like Asteroids. I don't have a spaceship. I can't go into outer space right now and shoot at Asteroids. That's something that I don't have the ability to do in real life. So I could go do that, you know. Uh, the things that people do in um, Grand Theft Auto or Call of Duty or, or you know... Uh, Need for Speed. The, you know, these are games that allow us to do, even if they take place in the real world, they let us do things that we can't otherwise do. Um, but I can play hide and seek. I I have that ability, so I don't know. There's no reason to be playing that on a video game console. I, I mean, like I said, when when you have those revelations at the age of ten, I, I surely other people had them as well. So, uh, so yeah, you know, you would buy an Atari game. Um, and, and look on the back and look at the graphics. Oh, that looks cool. And then you get home and you're like, wow, it's hide and seek. So, uh, yeah, you, you just have this combination of old games, new games, everything, quality going down, driving prices down. The market was just overwhelmed. And it wasn't just with games. It was with consoles as well. You know, if you take a look at, there was the, um, Atari 5200. There was the Intellivision for a long time. There was the, uh, Odyssey 2. There were the Coleco Vision had just come out. So uh, not only, you know, when Coleco released Donkey Kong, not only were they competing with other games, but they were competing uh, with other systems. You know, I mean, you could buy Donkey Kong for every system, the Atari 2600, the uh, 5200, the Intellivision, the Coleco Vision. You know, everybody had a version of, of uh, Donkey Kong, you know, or Pac-Man or whatever. So, uh, yeah, it just got too big to um, sustain itself. So that's, the sales went away. When the sale went away, the distribution went away. And then pretty much 
the entire thing went away. So, uh, everybody talks about the great video game crash of 83. You know, when you talk, people talk about the history of video games. Uh, there's this, this dark period of history, you know. Oh, oh, this terrible, this terrible time of uh, when video games went away. And I'm here to tell you, I didn't notice that there was a video game crash, and a lot of people that were there didn't notice. Um, so why did I not notice? Well, first of all, uh, you could still buy games. So it's not like games went away because the video game crashed. Uh, it was a very slow kind of transition. So, you know, you saw video game companies folding. But just because the company folded doesn't mean that the games weren't still available at Kmart for 5 or 10 bucks. you know. The games were still there. Uh, and And the other part of that is they were cheap. So actually... The end result for a lot of people, I know like me and my friends, the result of the video game crash, quote unquote, was that we got more games. So in 1983, I got more games than I had the previous year. Uh, I remember walking into Gibson's and seeing Activision games, new Activision games for $4.99. And I got um, Keystone Capers, I think. And I think I already had, I got uh, Dolphin. I remember, uh, it was terrible. I hated that game, but you know, five bucks. So I was actually getting more games as a result of the video game crash than, than less games. So as a, especially as a kid and as a video game player, uh, it was actually a good time for me. So another reason why I didn't notice was because in 1980, uh, as I've said before, we got our TRS-80 Model 3 computer, and in 1982, we got our Apple II computer. Uh, in 1983, I believe it was, my neighbors across the street that I mentioned a few times, uh, and my other friend Andy both got Commodore 64. So, I went through Lemon64.com, sorted it by year, and I just pulled out just a few games uh, that came out during the video game crash. These were all games that were released on the Commodore 64 in 1983. We have Archon, Battlezone, Beachhead, Castle Wolfenstein, Centipede, David's Midnight Magic, Defender, Dig Dug, Enchanter, Forbidden Forest, Godzilla, Gorf, Hard Hat Mac, Jumpman, Jumpman Jr., Minor 2049er, Moon Patrol, Miss Pac-Man, Pac-Man, Pac-Mania, Pinball Construction Set, Puyan, Cubert, Robotron, Sammy Lightfoot, Sargon Chess, Scramble, Spy Hunter, Star Trek, Star Wars, Suspended, Telegard, Wizard of War, and Zork 1, 2, and 3. In 1984... We got Archon 2, BC's Quest for Tires, Beam Rider, Below the Root, Beyond Castle Wolfenstein, Boulder Dash, Bruce Lee, Burger Time, Decathlon, Flight Simulator 2, Ghostbusters, Gremlins, Gyrus, Hero, Hitchhiker's Guide to the Galaxy, Jet Set Willy, Joust, Lazy Jones, Mario Brothers, Montezuma's Revenge, Mr. Dew's Castle, One-on-One, -on -one, Park Patrol, Pitfall 1 and 2, Pole Position, Popeye, Questron, Raid on Bungalow Bay, Raid over Moscow, River Raid, Rendezvous with Rama, Robots of Dawn, Satan's Hollow, Seven Cities of Gold, Space Taxi, Spy vs. Spy, Summer Games, Super Zaxxon, Tapper, Toy Bazaar, Track and Field, Ultima 2, Ultima 3, Up and Down, Wizardry 2, no, Wizardry 3, and Zaxxon. In 1985, we get, and this is the end of the uh, video game crash, 
1985, we got Alice in Wonderland, Bard's Tale, Bazooka Bill, Beachhead 2, Boulder Dash 2, Bounty Bob Strikes Back, Commando, Congo Bongo, Crystal Castles, Elite, Friday the 13th, G.I. Joe, The Goonies, Gyroscope, Hacker, Hardball, Heart of Africa, Hot Wheels, Karateka, Kung Fu Master, The Last V8, Law of the West, Mail Order Monsters, Masters of the Lamp, Mr. Do, The Neverending Story, The Pawn, Racing Destruction Set, Rally Speedway, Silent Service, Sky Fox, Summer Games 2, The Temple of Apshai Trilogy, Transformers, Way of the Exploding Fist, Winter Games, Wizard of Oz, ER Kung Fu, and Zorro. That is a lot of GD games for a video game crash. So, the reason that I didn't know there was a video game crash is because for me, for a computer user, there wasn't one. Uh, Games were still coming out on home computers at an amazing rate. Um, The other reason why I didn't notice there was a video game crash is because I also spent a lot of time in local arcades. These lists are not nearly as long as those, so bear with me. But in 1983, in the arcade, we saw Cloak and Dagger, Congo Bongo, Crossbow, Crystal Castles, Discs of Tron, Dragon's Lair, Elevator Action, Gyrus, Journey, Mappy, Mario Brothers, Space Ace, Spy Hunter, Star Wars, Tapper, Track and Field, and Up and Down. In 1984, we had Ten Yard Fight, 1942, Cheyenne, Firefox, Gapless, Karate Champ, Kung Fu Master, Marble Madness, Pac-Land, Paperboy, Punch-Out, Return of the Jedi, Thayer's Quest, and The Three Stooges. In 1985, we saw Bomberman, Boulder Dash, Buggy Boy, Choplifter, Commando, Dig Dug 2, The Empire Strikes Back, Gauntlet, Ghosts of Goblins, Gradius, Gunsmoke, Hang On, Indiana Jones and the Temple of Doom, The Legend of Cage, Magmax, Matt Mania, Roadrunner, Russian Attack, Sky Kids, Space Harrier, Tiger Heli, and Yar Kung Fu. Again, there was a video game crash, but... It affected home video game consoles. It did not affect home computers, which flourished during this time, and it did not affect arcade manufacturers. So, yes, less Atari 2600 games were being made. Ultimately, less of 2600 Atari games were being sold. Consoles began having problems uh, sustaining a user base because less games were being made, less games were being sold. But, as a kid who was into playing games, playing computer games, even console games, uh, and especially arcade games, the video game crash of 1983 was actually a very good time for playing arcade games. So what brought us out of the video game crash of 1983? And let's be honest, the video game crash of 1983 had a serious effect on the video game industry. Lots of companies went bankrupt, and that could have been the death knell of console video games. So what brought us out of the video game crash? And the answer to that is the Nintendo NES, the Nintendo Entertainment System, the NES 8-bit console. So when Nintendo released uh, the NES, and it came out in the fall, October 1985, there were a few things that they did differently than Atari... um, and all the other video game developers. The first thing is they wanted their console to look more high-tech, and actually they designed it to look more like a VCR than a video game console. That's why the NES is shaped like it is, and that's why you put the games in the front. Um, So the reason why we all have to blow on cartridges and that those springs get worn out and that we have to bend the pins and replace the pin connectors on our old NES consoles Uh, is because they didn't want it to look like a game console where you put a cartridge in the top. They wanted it to look like an electronic device. Um, But the the real reason that the NES put an end, uh, I won't say, well, it did put an end 
What they did to prevent another video game crash, so we all have Nintendo to thank for this, is they built in a lockout chip. And so what the lockout chip does is you have to have the lockout chip in your cartridge for your cartridge to work inside the NES. And if you don't have that chip, then your game will not work in the NES. So essentially what they did was seize control of game releases and game production. So now, if you were Activision, if you were Atari, excuse me, Tingen, uh, whoever you wanted to release games on the NES, you couldn't just manufacture your own cartridges. Now, they all tried, and Atari put a lot of time and money into trying to um, reverse engineer the lockout chip, and uh, there were eventually unlicensed games on the NES, but they were doing it in an unsafe way. They were doing it by... Um, I think by spiking the voltage, I've read, uh, to bypass the lockout chip, which is not necessarily a good thing for NES consoles. And now, I mean, years later, they have figured out how, how to do this, you know, but at the time, they didn't. So uh, that's basically how Nintendo controlled the release of games. If you wanted to release uh, a licensed NES game, you had to submit your game to Nintendo, and they controlled the production and the release of those games. In fact, they had very strict rules where each manufacturer could only release five games a year. Also, they required NES games to be an exclusive game for the NES for two years. So you couldn't release your game for the NES and then turn around and release it for the Atari 2600 or something like that. So they did control production and they continued to do that with later consoles and pretty much everybody after they invented that model, everybody uh, adopted that model. So just as it is today, uh, you know, with uh, Microsoft or uh, Nintendo or Sony, if you want to release a game, you have to go, you know, you have to submit your code and go through their infrastructure and they are the ones uh, that will release your game. So you can't just manufacture your own game. So that was the moment, the uh, NES in 1985, they took control of uh, the distribution of games. So they slowed that flow, and they only approve quality games. So that is basically what saved, what brought us out of the video game crash of 1983 was the reinvention of the uh, distribution process. So anyway, like I said, uh, video game crash in 1983, I don't have a whole lot more to add on that. I think, um, like I said, uh, as a kid who lived through it, it didn't, didn't, uh, didn't notice it. Of course, we didn't talk about there being a video game crash back then. Uh, you did see companies going out of business, and you saw games going on sale, but it was actually uh, relatively a short period of time. And if you were like me and had a home computer, or went to the arcade on the way home from school or anything like that, then uh, you probably didn't notice the video game crash. Or if you did notice, it was because your parents bought you a few more games that year. So, uh, And you also noticed because instead of Asteroids and Space Invaders, uh, you were playing E.T. and Sneak and Peek. So. But anyway, that is my memories of the video game crash of 1983. I want to thank everybody who gave me feedback. I want to thank everybody who uh, tweeted about the show. I appreciate um, the retweets. I appreciate everybody who's liked the page on Facebook. If you go to look up You Don't Know Flack on Facebook and like that, you can find out when I'm recording and what's going on. If you have any suggestions for future show ideas or feedback, you can always send me an email at robohara at robohara.com. 
Uh, from RobOHero.com, there's a link to the forums. If you want to join the forums, we've had a couple new people join. So hello, all the new people. And uh, that's pretty much it for this episode. So thanks again for listening. And we look forward to next week's episode. I don't have uh, a topic yet in mind for next week's episode. So if you have something you'd like to hear about, drop me a line. And we'll see if we can't uh, squeeze it in for next week. So until next week, this has been You Don't Know Flack. <laughs>